Okay, I just want to say up front that if, if you heard that Justin isn't speaking this week and someone else is and you went, ah, dang it, that's exactly where we want you to be because that's kind of where we are in this, in this passage. Um, we're starting this new series called Merely Pastors, Destroying the Cult of Personality in the Church and it's not that Justin has a cult of personality, but the part of his vision um, dating back a few years is to raise up other leaders, other pastors, to not be the lone voice that you hear, that I hear. And me standing here right now um, is evidence of that. And I recognize that that I'm, in in this role, I am un worthy and I'm used to being the younger brother the the person who's who doesn't necessarily get the opinion out there first who kind of assents and and supports and so a role of teaching the word is as much as I've been a performer and a up front on stage uh, in the past teaching God's word is something that freaks the daylights out of me. And I've been told that that's a good thing, but it doesn't make it feel any, any better. Um, but that's the point. And so we're going to learn more about that in the next five weeks as well as today. So we're in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5 through 17. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's one right in front of you if you don't want to use your phone. And um, it's the black one that doesn't um, read in German. So let's pray before we get started. God, you alone give the growth. And Lord, I just ask that you would teach your word today to each of us, that each of us would take what you want us to hear home and would be able to live it out. And Lord, that you would realign our perceptions and our our perspective on your church and on your church's leadership on pastors and teachers and and any other leader in the church. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so yeah, that's what we're going to talk about today. And uh, we'll be in verses, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 17. Um, just to give a quick introduction, we are in Corinth, ancient Corinth. And we have learned in the last couple chapters... Um, that in Corinth, in the church in Corinth, there are divisions, as we see in uh, chapter 1. There is quarreling, and then in chapter 3, there's jealousies and strife. And these things within the church are manifesting themselves in each person in the body, in the church, having their own sort of brand, their own sort of slogan that they are identifying who they are and who they are with. So we find in chapter 1 that people are saying, I follow Paul. Oh, yeah? Well, I follow Apollos. Okay, well, I follow Peter. Well, I'm with Jesus. So they're drawing lines um, apart from each other of identity. Paul calls this, in in here in uh, chapter 3, verse 3 and 4, Paul calls it merely human behavior. They are not acting like spirit-filled members of the same church. 
And they are, in fact, acting completely against the type of community that Jesus taught us to be. Uh, we find in Mark 10, uh, 42 through 45, Jesus sort of lays out how, how the church is to perceive its leaders and how the leaders are supposed to be. He says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so, here we find that these Corinthians, these people in the Corinthian church, and even their own leaders, were pridefully putting their identity in following a certain person, and using their name as rallying points to be above and even better than each other. And this way of acting towards each other in the church, Paul says, is just, it's just human. It's, it's not good enough. It's, mere, it's just human acting. It's not, it's not where he wants them to be. It is based on incorrect perceptions of themselves and of their leaders, of the identities of themselves as the church of God, as we'll find out in verse um, 16, the temple of God corporately, as well as the identity of their leaders and who they are. What, what should we perceive them as? Should they be up here or should be, where should they be? And so Paul here, in verses 5 through 17, he wants to realign their perceptions about who he is, about who Paul is, who their pastors are, and who they as the church are, and then why it all matters. So he starts off with the question of Paul and Apollos' identity. Let's read um, verses 5 through 9. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So he, he comes out with a punchline of who he is right off the bat. He says, servants. And if you were to ask the Corinthians, hey, especially those who said, I follow Paul, hey, who, who's Paul to you guys? They'd say, well, he's, he's the main guy. He's, he's my teacher. He's, he's the one we're following. And he, they'd say that other people would say the same about Apollos, but Paul comes in and he says, no, we are servants. And we get a picture of, of this view that Paul had um, from Jesus in Luke 17. He says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So, Paul, Paul, 
excuse me. Paul here says they are servants through whom they believed as the Lord assigned to each. So both he and Apollos had assignments from God and they carried them out. People believed, but they remained servants. They don't, servants don't get the glory for what they do. And that should be the same with pastors. That should be the same with leaders. They do not get the glory for the growth, for the progress that the church makes. It's only God who gets the glory. And um, I wanted to illustrate this with the current political campaign, but I'm going to use a, um, a candidate that is fine. It doesn't matter. He's not going to win. Um, John Kasich. So I, I thought it w- it's kind of like two guys um, who, who are supportive of John Kasich. They're chatting with each other. And um, one of them says, hey, yeah, I'm voting for, for Kasich. I think he's awesome. Um, but, you know, I'm really, I'm really digging his campaign manager. I just think he's amazing. And I'm, I'm throwing my full weight of support behind his campaign manager. I think, I think that guy is doing a legit job. And the other guy's like, okay, um, yeah, I'm supporting Kasich too, but I'm really digging my neighbor who has a sign out, outside of his yard. I think he's just awesome and i'm i'm just i'm going with him and both both of them are like okay we're both we're both on the same team it just doesn't make any sense <laughs> and that's what paul is saying he's saying that to to align yourself to put your identity in a servant of god to put your full weight in opposition to other people who are both who are also in the church doesn't make any sense because we're just servants. We're just doing the task that the Lord has given us to do. Um, so each one had his assignment. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And so Paul started the church. We, we see in this metaphor of the field. Paul planted it. And then Apollos watered it. And we can see that um, that is the case in Acts 17 when the church, uh, 17 and 18 when the church in Corinth started, is Paul was the first one. He, plant, he started it. He, was, he brought the gospel of Jesus to Corinth. And then he left. And then we find that Apollos came in and he continued the teaching in Corinth. And he did a darn good job, actually. And so we find that that's just historically the case, that one started it and one continued it. But he takes the credit here away from them as the founder and pastor. He takes the credit for the growth away from Paul, away from Apollos, and puts it on God. But God gave the growth. I recently planted a garden. Hold that. I didn't. My father-in-law helped me plant a garden, and he's really good. He's like garden guru. He's got this giant garden in Anacortes, um, just total, you know, people in Seattle look at him and go, man, what an awesome dude. He's got an awesome garden. And he's just doing it because he loves it. Um, But he came down because we have our own little outside space now in our new apartment, and he, he helped me 
plant the garden. Anna's really pregnant, so she just sat and watched, which is great. Um, But he's the one who brought the know-how. He's the one who basically planted all the plants. Um, But here's the thing. He left. He lives in Anacortes. And I've been watering this garden faithfully. And for a busy man, that is a huge deal. This is why when I was growing up in my busy family, the garden, the, the yard is always a mess. We're just too busy. Too busy to weed, too busy to water, and pe- things die. But I've been faithful. I, I wake up in the morning, I get my smoothie, and I go water the garden. And so we planted a lot of things, but among them were six broccoli plants. Starts. And about a month later, we have four. Two of them are dead. But here's the thing. I didn't do anything different for those two plants. I was watering them faithfully. I was putting sluggo to get rid of the slugs. I was doing everything that Paul taught me to do, and yet two of them are dead. I don't take the credit for the, the, the plants that are alive. I'm just doing what I've been told to do by Paul and by the gardeners of the world which is watering plants. But four of them are alive. (laughs) That's awesome. But I had to trust in the natural process to the sun to shine, but not too much. Trust that the roots are going to take, that the bugs aren't going to eat it. But also two of them died. And I I also can't really take the blame for that. So I'm not going to. Um, (laughs) But in our ministry, even in our one-on-one conversations with say, our loved ones, um, we want to be burdened for them so much that we can't help but when, whenever we have opportunity, we want to preach and, and gently instruct them toward Jesus. We want to be burdened to do that and seek opportunities to do that. <clears throat> and if they believe, praise God. We cannot take that credit, as we all know. But if they don't yet, or if they don't, we can't take the blame either. So if you have people in your life that you, you just want so badly to come to know Jesus, as we all do, and if, and if you're just discouraged, we can take encouragement from this, that you know neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but God alone gives the growth. And he will, and he does, and he did it for us. We have to remember that. It's all by grace. He gave the growth. We didn't grow ourselves. Plants do not grow themselves. And many times it actually takes time and watering. It's a process. So we can be encouraged by that. So Paul and Apollos, um, in verse 8, he says, they're one. He said, he who plants and he who waters are one. And so here he seems to take Apollos out of the blame for what's going on in Corinth. Apollos wasn't privy to the knowledge of, of uh, people claiming his name as, all right, I'm with Apollos. Um, and in chapter 16, verse 12, we find that he's not even in Corinth at this time. Um, so Paul says him and Apollos, they're on the same page. And that's built into the metaphor. He who plants and he who waters are one. That just makes sense. Me and my father-in-law, we're in cahoots. He planted, I'm watering, we want the garden to grow, right? <clears throat> and so 
they're one, they're on the same page, and that's, I mean, that's what we want for our leadership as well. We want to be on the same page. We want to have that same goal of growth in Christ. And each one will receive his wages according to his labor. And this word is the same word as um, in verse 14 for reward. And it seems in this context to be just he's putting the onus of, of what you get after you put in the work. He's putting it on the owner of the garden. He will receive his wages according to his labor. The field isn't what gives him his wages, his reward. Other workers aren't what give you your reward or your wages. It's only God. And, um, and you know, this could be what we will get after Jesus comes back, like um, we'll find out later in verse 14. Or it could be just God just blessing us because of what we get to observe and see that the growth is happening in his church. And it's not salvation. It's not, um, you know, it's not earning your way because of what you've done. It's more of uh, God's reward, and it's all by grace. And we'll find out later that we, all, we get to give it back to him anyways. Um, so then he, he sort of turns, he turns the, the metaphor here. He says, for we, Paul and him, or Paul and Apollos, are God's fellow workers. You, Corinthian church, you are God's field, God's building. So he puts the emphasis not on the workers, but on the one who sends the workers. The, the key here is the three possessives right there. We are gods. Paul and Apollos, we, we belong to God. We are co-workers that belong to God, and we are working God's field, God's building. And that's what we are. That's what we are. We are God's field that Paul, or, uh, God is cultivating through the leaders that he gives us. Um, I love the metaphors that, that Paul uses here. And in each metaphor that he uses for the church is a corporate one. So we find here God's field. A field isn't one plant. A field isn't one bush. It's a group of, of plants. And the health of the field is dependent on the health of each section, each plant. And, and it needs to be cultivated accordingly. And the same with a building. The, a building isn't one brick. It isn't one window. You know, it's, it's a group of materials that are built all glorifying one thing. Um, and then later in chapter 12, he uses the metaphor a body. And we get to study that um, in, in a, several months or so. And that's not made up of one part, right? It's not just the eye. It's not just the nose. It's not just the toe. It's not just the appendix, worthless. Um, but they all work together to, to function, and Jesus is the head. And so we find that he's, he's going on with these metaphors of the church, and he switches it. He goes from a field to God's building. And so here he's going to open it up um, in verse 10 through 15 to, to include not just him as the founder of the church, but to include any other pastor or leader that would build on God's building. So let's read that here in uh, verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, 
For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And so Paul, before he opens it up to other builders, he, he reaffirms that he was the founder of this church. He says, according to the grace of God, and once again, he gives it back to the Lord, he, like a skilled master builder, laid the foundation. And this correlates nicely with planted. So the first act of, of planting a field is to plant the field. The first act of building a building is to lay the foundation. And so Paul says that's what he did. Um, and it's interesting, he says, like a skilled master builder. And that word uh, skilled is actually the word he's been poking criticism at, wise. So all in, in chapter 1 and 2, we've been finding that the Corinthians have been distracted by worldly wisdom. They've been distracted by pursuing only human wisdom. And back in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And so he's saying, I, as a wise builder, as a wise contractor, as a wise architect, I'm the one who laid the foundation of this church. So then he opens it up. He says, someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. So he's, he kind of takes Apollos out of the picture at this point, and he, and he addresses them as potential leaders, and even the leaders that are, are possibly leading this sort of divisive bent in the church. And he gives his first warning. He says, each one take care how you build upon it. Why? why? Why do we need to take care? Because of the foundation. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ, Paul says, is the foundation of every church. He says, if a church is being started, if a, if a church is being built, the foundation, the first thing, the primary focal point needs to be about Jesus. So for a church planter, for someone who's starting a church, and, and to mix metaphors, Jesus is the foundation to be laid. And so for a church pastor, Jesus is the foundation. We must realize that, and our work must correspond to that fact. And if you're not a Christian this morning, why does this even matter? We're, we're sort of getting into the, the church and the leadership. Why does this matter? Well, because... If Jesus isn't the foundation of every member in the church, then he's not the foundation of, of the whole church. What I'm saying is, Jesus wants to be your foundation too. He wants to come into your life and lay a foundation and give your identity, let you have an identity in him and not in, in fear, not in sin, not in, in anything that we can put our identity in that will always fail us. 
Jesus is the only foundation that will, that will give us joy and peace. I've been watching a lot of um, skyscrapers get built, as we all have, in Seattle. Um, and there's specifically two that I've been having a close eye on, which is they're just right in front of my work. They're, I work right next to I-5, and I can look across, and there's two sky, skyscrapers going up. I think one is on its 27th story and one's on its 17th. And I know this because there are numbers corresponding to each story. And um, I'm not an expert by any means on uh, the foundation of skyscrapers. But I, I appreciate at least what I'm thinking, which is after the foundation gets laid for these buildings, there's a core that gets put in. And it's a tiny, it's, if you weren't, if you didn't think about it, you'd be like, that's a weird looking building. It's, it's tall and it's made of cement and it's very, very skinny. But that's the core of the skyscraper. If it didn't, if it didn't exist and there was only the bottom foundation, then it wouldn't stand. But the foundation of a skyscraper has to basically come along all the way up to the top. And this is where the elevator shafts will be and the power and all the the, the things that need to go up and down, um, <laughs> that's built into the core of the building. And I thought that was just a really cool picture because the foundation of Jesus in, in our church, in the church, is not just, you know, it's, it's the first thing that needs to get talked about and then we can move on. The foundation of Jesus is, it needs to inform every single layer. It needs to infuse and, and be a part of every single layer of the church. And he gives a great image of that um, in John 15 when he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. The vine isn't just the root and then everything else is up top. The vine is the entire running plant and everything else shoots off of that. And so that's just a great picture of the type of foundation that Jesus has to be in our church, in the church in general. Um, I was uh, working last week and I had a patient who, who randomly started talking to me about if I had had anyone die in my life. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting. And, um, I was like, well, not, not anybody like any immediate family, um, but grandparents. And he's like, do you want to see them again? I was like, well, I know I will. He's like, oh, how do you know? And so we got to talking and and it turned out he was a Jehovah's Witness. And I was, I was, I hadn't studied what Jehovah's Witnesses believe for a while. So I'm like, oh, what do they believe? And I'm kind of wondering this out loud to him. And uh, he says, well, we don't worship Jesus. And I was like, oh, thank you. There you go. <laughs> Jesus is not and who he really is is not the foundation of him, of that church and <laughs> the the knowledge of who Jesus is and therefore the ability to know him that's the make or break of every person's eternal destiny and that's what he says himself he says you know at the at the last day as we'll see in verse 13 at this day there will be people who who did not know him. 
He says, depart from me, for I never knew you. And so this foundation of Jesus Christ, it doesn't get any more important than that. So when people ask you about your faith, if you get in a conversation like that, if you get the opportunity to speak about your faith, we got to make sure and center our words around who Jesus is. It's not about what we do or what we don't do. It's about who Jesus is and who he can be to anybody if they would just open up their hearts to him. And as a pastor or even as any leader of ministry, I must always ask the question, am I, am, what I'm doing, am I building on that foundation? Are people being pointed to Jesus or could they possibly elevate me to where I shouldn't be? Are they looking at me like someone they should attain to? Or, are they, or when they look at me, do they see just evidence of God's grace? And we can ask that. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor or any, any leader. We can ask those questions. Are people, when people look at us, are they seeing evidence of God's grace? Or are they seeing something that they can project and, and elevate to a position of, of what we shouldn't be? And so, in verse 12, um, Paul opens it up. He says, to those pastors who desire to build on the foundation, they're going to come with materials. And he, he lists some. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. So just a couple observations here is that everything listed is in the context of being built on the foundation. So he's, he's, he's basically talking about people who mean well, who want to build on Jesus. And they're going to come with materials. And if we look at these materials, gold, silver, uh, and then the others, they are all different materials, right? Gold, silver, and precious stones survive fire, but they're all different, right? Wood, hay, and straw, they're all different materials, and they don't survive fire. That's... and. I think the ancient world would understand this a little bit better than us because we're so used to buildings that are fire-coated and, and proof. and Not this one, though. So, no smoking. <laughs> but he says, okay, you're bringing your materials, and, and what, what, what happens next? Each one's work will become manifest, and that's just each one's work will, will show itself. Because the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And so when will we know if, if the work that is being built on the foundation in the church, when will we know what it's made of? When will we know if it was sound? And Paul just throws it way in the future and says, when Jesus comes back, I mean, we don't know how far in the future, but for him it was at least 2,000 years. And he says the day will reveal it. And this is the day that he mentioned in um, chapter 1, verse 8. He says, God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this day is not something that only the New Testament talks about. It's something that the whole Bible talks about, the day of the Lord. It's basically the, the end of this age where God and then in the New Testament, it clarifies where Jesus will return, will raise the dead, will hold the final judgment, and perfect his kingdom. So, 
I think this could be a little bit discouraging for, for someone in the church who might have been hurt by the church. Because it seems like a long way off. Like, okay, justice is going to happen, but it's when Jesus comes back? Ah! And that could be discouraging for some people. But Paul, he doesn't mince words. He, he gives his warning here, let each one take care, but he even takes it further, as we'll see in verse 17. He, he doesn't mince words, and we'll, we'll get to that. But this day, it's bringing fire. What is, why, what is all this imagery? Um, well, two observations about fire. Not only is it light, so not only does it shed light on what's around it, but it also tests. So not only will the, the building that's been built on the foundation be shown, but it will be tested. And so the question is, what, what sort of work could possibly survive this day when Jesus comes back and he tests the work that's been done on his church? What could possibly survive that? Um, well, as we see here in verse 12, the gold and silver and precious stones are the only materials that will survive that fire, right? And so the work that could possibly survive is work and materials that complement the foundation. So church leaders, pastors, we need to be carrying out ministries that glorify Jesus and lessen ourselves. And we'll get to more of that in a minute. But this reward, what is in, in verse 14? If the work that anyone has built survives, he will receive a reward. What is, what is that talking about? Well, we see in the New Testament that there's, there's certain rewards that um, church workers and, and ministers can receive at the end. And a lot of times these are referred to as crowns. There's a few of them mentioned, and there's one in James, in First Peter, in Revelation. Um, crowns that will be given for a job well done. And this can seem like, oh, I'm just working for a reward. Um, but the cool, there's a really cool picture um, in Revelation 4, 10 through 11. And there's these 24 elders. There are 24 elders in the church, and they fall down when Jesus has set up his kingdom. They fall down in worship of him, and they, quote, cast their crowns before him, offering all that they have in worship to him. And so these are rewards that they're not like, all right, I got to collect all five crowns, um, but they're rewards that we get to worship Jesus with. They are just an increasing amount of glory that we get to bestow on him. And that's the goal. So this, this isn't selfish and gainful uh, rewards that we get, but it's more glory that we get to put towards Jesus. And so in verse 14, um, the, the work survives. But then in verse 15, the work is burned up, and he will suffer loss. So what, what materials could survive or not survive? There's a guy um, named Thistleton, and he's helpful here. Um, and he says, if justification by grace means the disillusion of all that is self-centered, sinful, and unworthy, such things by definition will not survive. On the other hand, 
what was offered in the strength of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Christ will have effects that eternally abide within the very existence and praise of the redeemed community and the life of God at the last day. So the work doesn't survive because of how good a job the builder did or how much they built. It's because of the materials that he built. So does it match the foundation? Does it glorify Jesus? Then it's sound. Does it, does it point people away from man, away from a works-based system, and toward the grace of God? Then it's sound. And that's the question that we can ask ourselves. Does, does the work point to Jesus? Whew. Great. Does, is it informed by selfish motives? Is it informed by a heart that wants glory? It's not going to survive. And again, this isn't, we're not talking about salvation here as we see here in verse 15. Um, this guy who built, this guy, um, he built and it didn't survive. He doesn't, he, he's not suffering loss to go to hell. He's suffering loss of reward. He's suffering the fact that his work was in vain. That all the effort he put into building God's kingdom wasn't made of the right materials. But he will be saved, but only as through fire. And this is kind of a, it's not talking about purgatory. Um, it's sort of a metaphorical statement, sort of like the one in Amos 4, um, where in, speaking of Israel, it says, you were as a burning stick plucked out of the fire. So in this context, Paul is saying that even the unskilled church builder will be saved, but only by the skin of his teeth. The loss here is a loss of reward, and his salvation is by the grace of God. So this is yet another image of the power of God's grace to save even the leader or pastor whose entire work on earth amounted to ashes. But all the glory goes to God for his salvation. So Paul concludes here in verse 16 and 17 with why this all matters. So he says in verse 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So Paul here comes back to the idea of who they are, what their identity is. He has discussed who he is and who their current leaders are, which are servants but now he wants to remind them of why this is so important. It is important because of who they are as a corporate entity in Corinth. They are the local temple of the living God and not their building, not their, the building that they meet in, but they themselves as a, as a group of people are God's temple in Corinth and that God's spirit dwells in them. So they are God's temple full of God's spirit, and the temple is the building that has been built on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. This is the first of ten times that Paul says, do you not know? He's, he, he does this ten times in this letter, but this is the first one, and it's like he's shaking them and just being like, surely you know this. You, plural, are God's temple, not individually, although he will say that in chapter 6, but in this context, he's saying that the group of them, with all of their, 
ramshackle house churches meeting each week, they are, they are God's dwelling place in Corinth. And that's just an amazing picture because they would, they would have the image of a temple. They have pagan temples all around there. And then the temple in Jerusalem. So they know what kind of amazing picture this is, that the place where God dwells is in them. And it's a, it's a picture Paul is painting of tremendous unity. And we, we find that that was his goal in this entire, this entire section, like we saw in chapter 1. He said that, that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So the fact that God's spirit dwells in each of them and that makes up God's temple, that's a huge deal. There's a guy um, named Gordon Fee, and he has a great quote on this. He says, as God's temple in Corinth, the church was to be his alternative to Corinth, both its religions and its vices. But the Corinthians, by their worldly wisdom, boasting, and divisions, were in effect banishing the spirit and thus about to destroy the only alternative God had in their city. But through God's Spirit, we, even us, as a church in Seattle, centered on Jesus, can be God's alternative community in Capitol Hill. Here there can be reconciliation that confounds the wisdom of the world. Here there can be love that confuses the newcomer. Here there can be joy that outlasts tragedy. Like Paul says in, in his second letter to the Corinthians, we can be the aroma of Christ, not only to the unsaved, but to the saved. People just can't help but be attracted by Jesus' Jesus's aroma, his fragrance that we give off when we are acting as God's temple, united. But then he gives his, his final warning here, and it's an intense one. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So God's temple, made up of his people, is so precious to him that he will not tolerate someone who would cause it damage. Being a builder of God's temple is a privilege only to be taken on by a servant in it for the glory of God. So for any pastor, leader, church builder, talking to myself here, be wary of using the church to enhance your own image. Paul is pretty clear that to defile God's church is not a safe thing to do. And he answers, you might ask, why? Why is he going to destroy this person? He answers it, he says, God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. In Corinth, the local church was God's alternative. If the church has been corrupted to the point of not being that alternative by someone, then it is no longer a place of grace set apart where lost people can come. But here's the thing. Pride is the thing that would keep this person on this trajectory. As James 4, 6 um, says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. As pastors, as leaders, as fellow Christians, we cannot let pride take root for that which most assuredly caused damage to the church. Thankfully, there is always grace 
for the pastor who humbles himself before God. I'd like to close with this um, quote again from Gordon Fee. He says, One of the desperate needs of the church is to recapture this vision of what it is by grace and therefore also what God intends it to be. It is perhaps not too strong to suggest that the recapturing of this vision, both of its being powerfully indwelt by the Spirit and of its thereby serving as a genuine alternative, holy in the most holistic sense, to the world. It's its single greatest need. Let's pray. God, I pray that in this... in this passage and in, this, in these next few weeks, Lord, that you would recalibrate our collective vision of what it means to be your church in Capitol Hill, what it means to be a leader, what it means to be a non-leader. But we're all, we're all built on the foundation, which is Jesus. God, I pray that that would be the case in our church, that we would be your alternative to Seattle or your alternative community or that you'd help us to live out the gospel in every single area or whether it's in our workplaces, whether it's in our families, our friendships with each other, our, our conversations, Lord, and even our ministry, Lord. Let the gospel of Jesus be the thing that informs it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.